Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca/slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Squarespace. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you are ready to launch, use the offer code CANADALAND to get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is also brought to you by Sonos. Sonos is offering listeners of this podcast 10% off of an order of whatever you want, up to $2,500 worth of their excellent smart speakers. These things sound incredible. Offer available for a limited time only. Cannot be combined with any other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code CANADA10, that is CANADA10, at Sonos.com. Reporter Laura Howells host of the Ryerson Review of Journalism's Pull Quotes podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We are going to be talking today about the CBC's new president, because it's 2018. We're going to be talking about the Toronto Star going national, because the rest of Canada needs more Toronto media. (laughs) And we are going to be talking about Lindsay Shepard. She has abandoned the left because it was just not fair 
to white nationalists. I'm sure the left is devastated to see her go. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Robert Thomas, Doug Janik, Catherine Brandt, Mike Barber, Myra McIntosh, Krista LePage, Kate Raines-Goldie, and John Hancher. I think Canada Land is important because I feel as if we are sliding into an uncertain and ahistorical time in the global situation and effectively in Canada as well. And the only thing that can help us keep track of what is actually going on is solid reporting and truth-seeking. And I feel that Canada Land is a program that contributes to that immensely. And Laura, as mentioned, this episode is brought to everybody by Squarespace. You are a enterprising young journalist. You know the value of a good portfolio. Do you have a website? I don't have a website, and I kick myself every day. Well, you are mere clicks away uh, from having your own personalized portfolio site. It's really easy to set up a website. You can do it when you use Squarespace by selecting a beautifully designed pre-made template and just kind of plugging in your own information. And then all of a sudden, you got a problem solved. It just works on everything, works on tablets, works on phones. You don't have to update it. There's never any technical problems where it falls out of date or there's some kind of update to the way other things work because they're sort of doing that for you. You're not just buying the website, you're buying all of that support and back end. And if you do have questions, their award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. They make it super, super simple. We recently used it when we were making a website for our new branded podcasts division, Earshot, and it was as advertised. Really, really simple to make a really, really nice looking website. I think you should consider, I think everyone should consider it. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, that's squarespace.com. Offer code CanadaLand. Laura, I want to read you a couple of quotes from various honchos at the Toronto Star. Here is the chair of the board of Torres Star, John Hunrick, one of the five families that controls the Toronto Star, speaking to the press in February. We have very little time left. More cuts will be coming, guaranteed. We're very, very close to the end. Now here is outgoing editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star, Michael Cook, speaking just a few days ago. The voice of the star.com is getting stronger as they ruled out this new investment expansion. They're going national. They are changing Metro newspapers in Calgary, in Edmonton, in Halifax, in Vancouver, and in Toronto. No longer Metro free newspapers, free commuter rags on the subways, on the buses. Now it's Star Metro. It looks like the Toronto Star. It's got that blue masthead. And they basically are saying that we are establishing a national news presence and we are hiring 20 new reporters and the Toronto Star is now a national local news centered brand and all of those all of those stories reported in those different cities are going to funnel back into the star.com we've now got feet on the ground throughout Canada and uh, a bit of a surprising announcement considering all of these dire ominous warnings of their impending doom that we were getting just a couple months ago yeah, it was an interesting decision. Um, I was, it's surprising to sort of see, you know, all this doom and gloom and then to see the star expanding like this, especially when this comes on the heels of the star, you know, cutting their year-long internship program and their summer internship program. And, you know, a few months after Tour Star shuts down all these local papers in other areas. So, yeah, it's an interesting allocation of resources. I mean, I think hiring more reporters and investing in, you know, investigative coverage, which is what this move seems to be trying to champion, is always going to be a good thing. And mm-hmm. hiring, having more feet on the ground, that's great. But it's interesting that they're putting those feet in the ground in places outside of their core market, which is 
you know, Toronto. At the same time, there's no indication that they are going to be making up for the the cuts that have happened in that location. In fact, one thing that our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, was talking about is that they are replacing a lot of the work that was done by, you know, their interns or their reporters. Conceivably, it seems as if that kind of daily news reporting will now be done by some of these new hires. And... They're not unionized the way that Toronto Star employees are unionized. So what you might be seeing here is like, yes, there's a reinvestment in reporters, but it's also a bit of a union breaking, you know, the future of hiring as you expand. And I mean, looking at this from the other perspective, I was saying, well, any new investment in journalism in Canada will be outside of there will be attempts to get it outside of a unionized regime, you know, and maybe we just need to like face facts that like reinvestment is reinvestment and you can't have everything. But there's definitely a labor angle to this. I mean, I'm trying to look at this and just like get my head around everything that this means. I think, you know, looking past some of the immediate responses, like, of course, it was rolled out in a signaturely dickish way that things always happen where people who work for Metro found out about, about this when reading Metro. And they don't know if you're writing an opinion column, let's say, for a Metro newspaper, what your future is going to be in this new star Metro regime. I don't know. I've just been collecting opinions from people about this. I mean, one thing that was pointed out to me is like, are readers in like the prairies going to appreciate having this Toronto Star brand shoved at them. Like, it looks like the Toronto Star is what you're going to, like, it's that blue ribbon. But it'll be the Calgary Star. But it's the Cal- it's Calgary Star Metro. And I know that there's a lot of sensitivity, <laughs> and not just in Alberta, you know, Vancouver, Halifax. The idea that you're getting, and some of the content will be coming from the Star's newsroom, and, you know, you're here's an, another Toronto-based media brand that is purporting to tell you your local news. I don't know. I mean, I pushed back when somebody was complaining about that to me, saying, like, I don't even know if people are are cognizant of the Toronto Star. I don't know. Maybe I'm not giving enough credit. (laughs) Like, is is there, is there, I guess never underestimate the hatred of Toronto throughout the rest of Canada. You know, it's it's possible that, that there will be a big pushback against that. Yeah, maybe. And I guess that is a product of, of how much the Toronto Star brand does hold across Canada. And I mean, the Toronto Star already built itself as a national newspaper, even though they are clearly Toronto-centric. But, but yeah, I mean, it's not like Metro isn't already sort of a Toronto-centered brand itself. And it's not like the Toronto Star doesn't already pull from Metro papers. And Metro papers carry Toronto Star copy, don't they? Like, it's that they, relationship they already. Do, but there is something about branding. I mean, we were just discussing this this morning here. Like the weirdest one for me is the Toronto version because, you know, it's always been a little bit obscured that you can essentially get your top stories that you would have to pay for in the Toronto Star for free in a copy of Metro that's sitting on your subway. But it looks different and nobody really thinks that you're, you know, I think that the idea was always that like you're not really cannibalizing the Toronto Star because it's this lesser, quicker version. But now you're going to have something that looks almost identical to the Toronto Star as like a little mini star for free called Star Metro Toronto with the same colors and the same branding. And then you're like, what does that mean for the Toronto Star? Like, what would it mean for the Globe and Mail if you could get like Globe to go (laughs) in a little snackable version on the subway? Like, do you expect those people to then subscribe to the Globe and Mail? Or are you kind of giving up the ghost that like subscriptions for the Toronto Star, like we don't care anymore? Like, what is that going to mean? That's interesting. I didn't think about that. Or maybe it's to like give people a taste. So that will encourage them to subscribe to the full package. I mean, I I don't know if that's really going to work. Yeah, because when somebody thrusts something for free in my hand on a subway, I value it more. (laughs) more than if it was something that I had to pay for to get. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'll go out on a limb here and say that, like, all these reservations aside, this might be a good idea. 
Like, I think that there's like, there's still money to be made off of free commuter rags and especially in underserved parts of the country and beefing up journalism in order to get people committed and a bit more interested than you would if it was just, you know, something to look at the Sudoku and aiming everything at a populist. I mean, I think that's a big place where Canadian news lost itself is when it forgot about your populist reader, when it forgot about new Canadians and young Canadians and started to market itself as some sort of prestige establishment product. If the Toronto Star is like, we're going to be a national news brand that actually cares about hitting those other readers, then maybe this is good. It feels like a more cogent plan to me than Star Touch. For sure. And especially if you're hitting those other readers with content that is valuable and that has good stories and good reporting and and isn't just sort of quick, cheap hits that you might expect in a commuter rag. Not that I'm calling Metro a commuter rag, but, you know, it certainly doesn't seem to be at the level of uh, a Star Touch type decision. But it, it is, again, like making this expansion outwards instead of focusing inwards on the Toronto product. I just think it's interesting, and I'm I'm very curious to see how this works out. When did rag become a pejorative? I love that <laughs> word. Uh, no, fair enough. And this is, a, this is a plan that at least has, like, revenue attached to it, like, tomorrow, as opposed to Star Touch, which was based on, you know, magical dreams and fairy dust. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see them turning a buck on this. Who knows? Good luck, you know? I, and I also feel like this talk of we're hiring 20 new reporters and a national footprint, and I, I have to wonder, like, as meager as the $10 million the government is putting up a year is, is it's directed towards local news. Mm. And I have to imagine the tour stars thinking that they're going to get a big chunk of these new salary dollars subsidized by government. Which, I mean, on one hand, they're really talking up the fact that this is a value in investigative reporting and local news coverage. But also, if you look at where these metros are, I mean, they're in places like Vancouver, Calgary, Halifax. These are places that are relatively well served in the media market. Like, yes, you're providing local news coverage for these cities, but it's not local news I don't know. the level of, uh, I I don't know. Vancouver's hurting. Vancouver's in rough shape for local news right now. Okay, sure. Yes. Um, And again, I'm not saying that like having more local news coverage in these cities is a bad thing. It's a great thing. But when we're looking at where this government money is going to go, we're going to have to be thinking about what actually counts as local news. And if we're going to say like a city like Vancouver should be eligible for local news funding. like Oh, uh, I, I see where you're going. There's obviously places that are in more dire need. Vancouver has sort of like some not so great options. There's places that don't have any local news coverage at all. Nobody's covering even local government. Mm-hmm. So you, you hope the dollars will be directed there. And I think there was some intention for the dollars to be directed towards, you know, new digital spending as opposed to, I mean, but I knew from the start that who knows how to get this money, you know, like the, the big brands are going to try to get this money. For me to be here as the first woman CEO of CBC Radio Canada is an incredible honor. My greatest aspiration is to make a meaningful contribution to ensure a robust future for one of Canada's greatest and most important cultural institutions. In a world of um, the ocean and tsunami of uh, digital content that's coming from all over the world, but especially from the United States, there is nothing more important than local stories and local news. Okay, so the CBC has a new president. Mm. Digital president? The digital president. You know, like the digital bona fides of Catherine Tate are a little bit suspect to me. Like digital is still this magic sauce that people like if they've ever done anything on the web, they can say, I have digital experience. Well, you made some web series for the CBC that nobody's ever heard of. And, you know, so Catherine Tate is announced as the liberal government appointee for the new president of the CBC. And immediately people start vetting and looking for things. And that's fine. We should be doing that. And I took some heat because... uh, 
I retweeted JJ McCullough, but you got it. He, he, he's the one who looked at something first and he looked at um, whether or not she'd given money to the liberals. And mm. she had, I mean, kind of a paltry amount, like $1,500 or something. Is that confirmed that it's the same Catherine Tate? I don't know that that has been verified yet, but I think that question was widely asked yesterday. And I guess the clock is ticking for somebody to disambiguate that if it was not. Mm. It would not be terribly surprising. And nor is there any prohibition on her giving money to the liberals and then getting a liberal appointment. In fact, that's kind of predictable. So some people said, what's the big scandal here? It's not that much money. I don't know that it's a big scandal as much as it's just sort of, let's remember these are political appointments. Mm -hmm. And and let's remember that parties have always done this. Finding the best person for them. I'm sure they are trying to find the best person, but they're also trying to find a friendly person to them and their agenda. That's always been the way it is. So there was that angle looked at with Catherine Tate. A television writer named Mark Farrell was getting into, says, well, here's what I have to say about Catherine Tate. I worked with her on a pilot, and he tells a story where he alleges that she kind of screwed him in a story that feels like the story that every TV writer has ever told about working with producers. But fair enough. Uh, all of this stuff, I think, you know, your past should be looked, you know, to whatever degree it's accurate, what he's saying about her. I was more curious about her experience. And, you know, the claim to digital experience was one thing that I kind of got snagged on. The other thing was just, you know, you look at what she's done. She headed up Salter Street Films. So, you know, many years of making this hour has 22 minutes. A terrible show that she produced called Pure Ponage, trying to turn an internet, you know, a sensation into a, a really lousy TV show. You remember the show Chili Beach? No, I don't. It was a CBC cartoon where they're like, let's take the production values of South Park, but remove the wit and satire. Um, so some pretty awful TV shows are her kind of chief credits that pop up when you do a Google search of what she's been involved with. Without disparaging or getting into the relative quality, and it's a very subjective thing of these shows, what made kind of a red flag pop up for me was there's no journalism in her background and there's really no public broadcasting. Uh, she, she had a brief relationship in the 80s with telefilm nominally. You know, it's just not broadcasting, but at least it's a public Mm. cultural producer. Her entire career outside of that has been in private TV and film. And to me, that was the most telling thing. And this is, um, I have no idea if she's ill-equipped to do this job or anything like that. It's more a statement on the values and priorities that go into making that appointment. Like CBC is a news organization. CBC is a public broadcaster. And CBC is a big entertainment brand. And to choose someone to run it who has no experience with the first two things and has dedicated their entire career to TV entertainment and film entertainment feels to me like a perpetuation. Like you're saying something about what of those three qualities of the CBC you're valuing most. I mean, I guess two things I'll say to that. Like one, I think was the Globe that pointed out yesterday that Catherine Tate is the first CBC CEO that would have any kind of meaningful experience in media production at all. I mean, like the last CEO, LaCroix, was a lawyer, right, and had history in yeah. law. And then before that, you know, bureaucrats and politicians. Um, so, I mean, I guess you could say that any kind of media experience and sort of having your hand in that realm at all and running the CBC is better than nothing and better than coming from a background that is totally disconnected from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I know what you're saying about the the not having the journalistic experience. And maybe that also speaks to like the the search committee isn't also releasing the other names of the people that were put forward for this appointment. They don't they're not saying how many people. It might also come down to kind of the pool of applicants. And if you're looking for a journalist or somebody that has like the CBC is a huge corporation, you know, $1.5 billion corporation, thousands of employees. Like you're essentially taking on a job to manage something that is massive. And I don't know how many people with really good, meaningful journalistic experience have the skills and experience necessary to do that job. Like maybe it's a question of the job itself being 
kind of detached from the the skill set that most journalists would have. I mean, yeah, I've heard that put forth with uh, with with prior, you know, with Lacroix and others that running a corporation of that size, an organization of that size, has more to do with just being a CEO of like a widget factory mm-hmm. than it does with running a newsroom. So you want to get good widget factory people, and I've heard that you know that's been put forth. And then all of this is just about the identity crisis. Well, is it a big corporation? Is it a big government bureaucracy? And previous appointees have been like, we don't really even care about private sector experience necessarily. Like you, you would get people who were just, you know, bureaucrats uh, to run it. It's hard to say. I know that some people who've been lobbying behind the scenes, you know, for years now saying like, Lacroix was a Harper appointee. The board, there was total board capture with conservative appointees to the board. Now they've got Michael Goldblum, who does have journalistic background as the chair of the board. It's been said that this is an activist board and that if you listen, if you're trying to read between the lines of what Tate said in her first press appearance about this, she was talking about how local news, local news, local news. So at least in their signaling, there's some sensitivity towards like, we are getting where the wind is blowing right now. And people are much more focused on the need for CBC to be a news organization than anything else. I don't want any one person involved in this to kind of like wear the shame of what I'm pointing. Like, I think that there is no clarity coming forth from government. Like it's muddled in who they've appointed. There's no clarity coming from the public because we haven't really been asked to weigh in on this. It's long overdue. They're going to be revisiting the Broadcast Act. I think the CBC mandate needs to be revisited. And this larger existential question, what the hell do we want them to do? I have sympathy for the people who are trying to run it because like, what is the brief? What, what are your marching orders? What are you supposed to do? Just Is it just about perpetuating? You've got thousands of people working for you. you got to keep the ratings up. you got to mm-hmm. keep the budgets. You know, like, Is that just the thing of just keeping it running? Or are we actually at a point where we're looking to revisit some of these questions that I keep asking? Like, do we want there to be advertising on it? Is it more important for us to have a news organization than a sitcom producer? You know, like I often feel like I'm just kind of like asking these questions into a void. And is this a conversation that people want to have? You know, I don't know. Yeah. And and the reference to this being an activist board is interesting. Like we did see the liberals before Christmas appoint two new people to the board that I think do have journalistic background. Um, and I do wonder sort of if this if we're going to see the board of directors for CBC maybe take on a more active role in shaping the vision of the corporation yeah. or. Yeah, um, it'll be it'll be curious to see what happens there. Tell me the truth, Jesse. Did you did you want Mansbridge to get the CEO job? Is that is that what you're hoping? I was lobbying behind the scenes for Mansbridge mm. just to fuck up his retirement. You know, yeah. I just I figure <laughs> pull him out of there. <laughs> I mean, one one thing I do want to sort of say about the board of directors, I was looking on the website last night and sort of looking on who's at that sort of top tier. And um, that level of right now, the, the CBC board and, and that senior team is extremely, extremely white. And, and all the new appointments don't do anything to make the board or the CEO any less white. And I, I just think it's worth noting that at a time when the liberal government and the CBC itself are really publicly pushing for diversity and, and, and making a strong statement that they are trying to increase diversity within their own organizations and within the government. I think it's just worth noting that at the very top level, that diversity doesn't exist and um, none of the sort of new appointments help that at all. Well, that is a fantastic point to bring up when they're getting accolades for the long overdue appointment of a woman as president. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is an omission that I think we should note. Speaking of which... Uh, let us move on to Duly Noted. <laughs> okay. You know this show. You know what we do here when we note things duly that need to be duly noted. Okay, I duly do. Can you begin? So there was a, a good feature in the Columbia Journalism Review recently called Erasing History. 
And uh, it looks at what happens when an online news outlet goes out of business or gets shut down and its online archives just disappear. Yeah. And um, and how fragile these online archives really are. And, of course, we saw this last year with Gawker and, and you know, all the outrage that happened there when the, the archives were taken down. But I think this is something that, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about. And I, I think this is something that we need to be thinking a lot more about in Canada as well. I mean, we're seeing all of these local newspapers getting shut down. We're seeing a lot of news outlets go out of business. And in many cases, this means that their website just you know, disappears as well. So you're not just eliminating this local news coverage going forward. It also means that you're just kind of eliminating easy access to all this past local news coverage. And so you're eliminating all this access to contacts about a community or information about a community's past. Or, you know, for reporters, you're eliminating easy access to their portfolios. I mean, it's an issue too for reporting in the present moment. Like if you can't go back and easily search up information about, you know, a story to give that context moving forward, like how how are you supposed to do good reporting about a community in the future? I mean, there was an article in Scientific America recently about how this makes things harder for researchers who are doing things like tracking the spread of disease or infections. So I think we're only going to see more and more news outlets close in the coming years, more and more newspapers shut down. And I just think we need to be paying a lot of attention to what's happening to the online archives of these newspapers because we really can't trust publishers or publishing platforms to keep news content alive. That's a great thing to think about. I mean, I remember, uh, I'm sure there's dozens more, when the Montreal Mirror went out of business. And, you know, this isn't like the news record of this. It's sort of just like the cultural archives of a certain Anglo segment of, you know, like what my universe was there. And like, But for years and years and years and lots of journalists who got their start and just tracking what happened with the music scene and like, it's just poof, it's gone. Yeah. And it's a goddamn shame. I mean, you consider like it's not that expensive to maintain these archives. And if ever there was a role for something like a public broadcaster, but they, they don't even put their own archives up, you know, mm. like, like CBC Archives is this very selective curated sampling of things from the past to have searchable open archives, uh, if they if they can't do it with their own content, you know, handing them the, the job of doing that for other stuff out there and all the copyright issues. I'm sure it's incredibly complicated to do, but it should be done. Duly noted. Okay, I got one. I think a lot of people will remember that the day after Donald Trump's travel ban, his first travel ban, Justin Trudeau got on the Twitter machine and said, to those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. And that got retweeted over 400,000 times. It was reported in, I think, by PBS and others as Canada has agreed to take the refugees who Trump is expelling. It was a reasonable conclusion for people to reach. And it was reported as, as fact. And when the clarity emerged that this was just some something that Trudeau said and that there was actually no change to the number of refugees Canada would be bringing in and no policy decision to back up anything and that it bore no relation to the Trump travel ban. I was one of the people who remarked, that's a dangerous fucking thing for the prime minister to be saying. Like people are going to take their families and try to cross the border in the cold based on the conception that Canada will take the huddled masses rejected by America. So... National Post reporter Marie Danielle Smith filed an access to information request with the government to get a hold of all the internal correspondence surrounding Trudeau's tweets and the havoc that it wrought. And unsurprisingly, there was bedlam. Uh, there was a flurry of communications from all of our various consulates around the world saying people are showing up here thinking that Canada will take them, especially people who come from the banned countries that Trump was singling out. What the hell am I supposed to tell them? And there were, you know, huge redactions in the A-tip that the Post received. But what was clear was that this was having 
predictably an effect on an overwhelming number of refugee claims, people in person showing up. What actually played out at the border is not covered in this story. But there was an immediate impact on the lives of some of the most vulnerable people in the world. And it just made me think like, you know, for all the conception of Trump as somebody who just picks up his phone and tweets what he feels, and then everybody's got to figure out whether it's real or not, or make policy to suit it, or... Trudeau kind of did the exact same thing and was operating very much like an idealistic young university student who just like feels really strongly that Trump did a bad thing and then tweets something great about Canada. But he's the prime minister and it has consequence when he tweets things like that. Huh. I, I haven't read that story, but that's that's really interesting. Uh, was there a lot of communications before Trudeau made that tweet? Like, was there a lot of prep and sort of vetting of that tweet before it went out? That is not covered in the story as to whether or not, like, what kind of internal communications process. I always just assumed that there was not. It felt like an impetuous, off-the-cuff tweet. You know, my guess is, and my knowledge of how you fill out an ATIP form, is that what the Post's ATIP requested was, in response to that tweet, you know, any internal government communications that refer to that tweet. So I think that that's another valid area for reporters to look at as to what went into the crafting of that tweet, if anything, in terms of planning. I would be so surprised if nothing went into the planning because, I mean, everything about what Trudeau does seems so carefully manicured and so carefully crafted that to have him just sort of tweeting off the cuff, I, I would be shocked if that was actually the case. I guess we don't know. I mean, I, I always suspect that, you know, as carefully stage managed as he is, there are times when he has kind of, you know, shown up without his pants on and, you know, made some moves of his own accord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I always took this to be one of those occasions, but, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't assume anything. I would love to know the actual <laughs> factual story behind how that tweet got out. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Well, duly noted. I believe you uh, you have one more for us. Okay. So I don't just want to be a, a cheerleader for an organization that I am a part of, uh, but I do think it would be remiss not to duly note that uh, next week, the Ryerson Review of Journalism magazine is coming out. It's being published in a few days. And if you are interested in media criticism or journalism about Canadian journalism, which maybe you are if you're listening to this podcast, some of my colleagues have done some really interesting work in this magazine. The cover story is uh, written by uh, Rhiannon Johnson. It's a profile of Tanya Talaga, who is the uh, amazing Indigenous journalist at the Toronto Star who wrote Seven Fallen Feathers uh-huh. about the, the death of seven youth in Thunder Bay. There's also some really interesting stories in there, one about sort of how Canadian journalists cover hate and far-right groups. There's a feature uh, by Ben Waldman on how Canadian media organizations have responded to weed legalization and sort of the growth of the marijuana beat in this country. There's also a story, I, I don't know if you're interested in this, Jesse, at all, but um, my colleague Amy Vandenberg has written this profile on a certain snarky Canadian media critic. I, I don't know if you've heard of him, but uh, it's yeah. possible that I am providing space for you to plug <laughs> a a hatchet job, a smeared. I, I, she's been reporting this piece for months and I have no idea if I'm going to look good in this or not. So uh, I'll be reading this issue of the Rise of Review Journalism with great interest. <laughs> well, I guess that your listeners should too. I'm sure that it, be it critical or laudatory or both, it is not a hatchet job or a smear job. <laughs> Where can people find the Ryerson Review of Journalism? The launch party is on April 12th at uh, the Sterling Room. You can find online versions at rj.ca and uh, the magazine will be available on the RJ website and at bookstores and, and newsstands as well. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Okay, Laura, I want to thank our other sponsor today, and that is FreshBooks, because, of course, it is tax time. Freelancers, small business owners, do not put this off any longer. I know it's weighing on you. Get it done. Get it done in a way that is easy and effortless and kind of stupidly simple, and FreshBooks is that way. They make this thing here in Canada. 10 million people use it around the world, and if you've been using it all year, you're in especially good shape right now because you can just hit a button and get a profit and loss summary. You can get your HST all tabulated. It is very, very easy to do your taxes if you've been using FreshBooks. If you have not been using it, then why not take this time of the year as impetus, as inspiration to get your affairs in order, respect yourself. I mean, these are, it's one of these things you can do without paying a affordably priced service like FreshBooks to have your invoicing and all of your billing. You you can do that in Microsoft Word uh, if you don't respect yourself. I'll I'll just say that. It's for people who don't respect themselves. I mean, you're trying to save a few bucks and it costs you so much time. Your time is worth something. And it's nice to use FreshBooks. It actually takes something that's a drag and makes it into a bit of a pleasant experience. Would I even call it a pleasure? Sure. It's a pleasure to use FreshBooks. (laughs) If you are curious about anything that I'm saying, you can try out FreshBooks for free for 30 days. That's an unrestricted free trial. You don't need a credit card to give it a whirl for CanadaLand listeners. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and enter CanadaLand in the how did you hear about us section. I'm going to walk away from this podcast a much better person, respecting myself and building my own website. All the tools you need. Finally today, Laura, I, uh, I want to extend my sympathies to the left, actually to leftists, mm. to leftists around Canada. They lost a, a valuable team player recently. So sad. Lindsay Shepard has renounced the left. She has said, Lindsay Shepard, of course, the TA who famously was rebuked by her university for playing a Jordan Peterson clip to a tutorial group. She immediately identified herself when that happened as, look what they've done to me, and I'm a leftist. Now, that raised eyebrows right when she said it. 
because I have never met a self-described leftist. I've never met – it's sort of like hipster. Nobody calls himself a, a, a hipster and nobody calls himself a leftist. As soon as she called herself a leftist, she's using this word that is used by, you know, the alt-right. There was even talk that like this whole thing seems so set up. You know, was she baiting this whole circumstance by playing the Jordan Peterson clip on purpose in order to get rebuked? I thought that was overly conspiratorial. There were questions about like, well, who actually complained about this? How did this happen? You know, it feels like a very stage-managed scandal. And my take on it at the time was like, I don't even care. I don't even care. Like, they should not have done that. You know, the fact that she recorded herself being upbraided by her senior administrators and professors there. Whether this was a setup or not, it was gross to me to hear that kind of punishment being meted out in an academic setting. And so I, I wasn't really playing into this whole narrative of, like, who is Lindsay Shepard really? But everything that's happened since leading up to this unsurprising distancing of herself from leftists and, and the fact that she has become a media personality in her own right, I think fairly positions her in the lens of a discussion about Canadian media. What did you make of Lindsay Shepard's crisis of faith with her leftist identity? <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, when I saw this video, I was just like really surprised. I had kind of forgotten that Lindsay Shepard had immediately associated with the left back in the fall. And so sort of hearing that she was up until this point, still a quote-unquote leftist, um, I just thought was very surprising and, and kind of funny. When I was doing um, radio interviews about the Faith Goldie event, people would ask me how I feel about Faith Goldie's views. And I, I'd have to, I found myself explaining the difference between white nationalism and white supremacism, because there's a huge difference. And the, the left wants to make it so that even if you acknowledge that difference, there must be like something really dangerous or something really scary about you. And so even when I was explaining that difference, I felt like very self-conscious about it, right? Um, so again, it's, it's the removing of the nuance in order to control the narrative. Really like wh what I want to get across is that uh, I in no way want to be associated with what left has become. I'm not a leftist anymore. I would not call myself that. Does that make me right-wing or does that make me a centrist? I don't know. You tell me. Um, but all I know is I am, I do not want to have any part in this disgusting leftist culture. I mean, this whole video is, is a little bit ridiculous in the sense that she's talking about the fact that like she is distancing herself from the left because, you know, this the straw that has broken the camel's back is in this whole controversy over Faith Goldie and her speaking at Laurier. You know, the left just didn't have enough nuance to distinguish between Faith Goldie being a white supremacist and a white nationalist. And Lindsay Shepard says there is a huge difference between the two and the fact that the left, you know, cannot distinguish between that difference, you know, that's that's just too much for her. She she cannot no longer be associated with this group of, I think she called them humorless people, um, pro-censorship people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I just found it, first of all, on like a surface level, it's just so funny and hypocritical to be talking about a lack of nuance in the same breath as making these sweeping statements about a broad group of people who are bound together by a really loosely defined ideology. This, this whole thing just seemed outrageous. And I, I wonder even how much value there is kind of spending so much time talking about this video and talking about Lindsay Shepard's departure from the left and whether that's just adding more fuel to the Lindsay Shepard fire. Yeah. I, that fire is blazing. And at this point, I have the same reservations about perpetuating like the entire narrative of this. I mean, even going back to the original pronoun debate, like I always have to remind myself like, this is about nothing. I'm not saying that the debate over pronoun usage is nothing, but like 
Peterson's original position was based on a hypothetical request and, and a misinterpretation of the human rights legislation. We're talking about a divisive, angry uh, controversy that has kind of just had legs for months and months and months in Canada in which there, like at the root of it, there is no... There's no there there. Like there's no like, who is the person who was on the receiving end of this? Who is the person whose freedom of speech was suppressed? Who's the person who's, uh, you know, who asked for that gender usage? Like, like it's all just shadow boxing. And to talk about it is, are we just maintaining this, like this huge, like simulacrum-y kind of, I don't know, just totally abstract thing. And yet it is, it is, it is something that is playing out in the columns of, you know, from Christy Blatchford. Like it, it has become the center of the Canadian culture war. And I don't know. I mean, like, I share your reservation, especially because, like, are we then giving even more credibility to this distinction uh, with Faith Goldie that Lindsay Shepard feels is such an important one? This this lack of nuance on the left. Like, and I'm remiss to even, like, get into, like, oh, my God, do we have to even do this? Like, we have these discussions here because we like to be accurate in our language. Like, can we call Faith Goldie a Nazi? Can we call her a white supremacist? Can we call her a white nationalist? Well, let's let's take it apart. And like the argument of white nationalists is like, well, no, we're not racist. We're not white supremacists. We're merely saying that white people need their own unique ethnostate. And that ethnostate should probably be here in North America. And I think that then that's a distinction without a difference when you conceive of like, you know, you're not just saying that white people have a right to their own culture, same as anyone else. You're saying that they have the right to their own state and that state should be here. So that is, you are asserting a certain level of supremacy. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're putting white people first and I don't owe you, like, you don't get to call, to determine what I call you. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like facts determine what I call you. Nazi, Nazi might be a stretch, you know, like neo-Nazi. I don't know. She was on a neo-Nazi podcast. Uh, Faith Goldie more recently was endorsing books and endorsed a book that calls a famous fascist text from the 30s that actually calls for the destruction of the Jewish people. Uh, the vermin, like this is classic Nazi propaganda. She recommended that book. I, I'm reading today her tweet saying, oh, I, I recommended it, but I never read it. So I didn't know that it called for this. And of course, apparently the, the largest chapter in the book deals with the quote unquote Jewish question. And Jews are mentioned dozens and dozens of times in the introduction. And that's where I get to this place where I'm like, why am I ha- like, y- you are reprehensible. You stand for values that have, we have discarded the idea of racial superiority. Politically, this has uh, like resulted in, in war and destruction and Holocaust. Everyone has moved on from debating this stuff. And I think, you know, th- this effort to re-engage the public conversation with these issues should be resisted. But do we resist it just by ignoring it? Like, I, I definitely feel like Lindsay Shepard's 15 minutes should be up. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm pushing in the wrong direction by, by letting her name come out of my lips right now. I don't know. I just feel like the farce of the whole thing bears some discussion. And I mean, a lot of the farce comes from the fact that, you know, Lindsay Shepard is splitting hairs between white nationalism and white supremacism. And I mean, maybe like you're saying, like if we are to take anything from this, it's to sort of be a bit more reflective about how we are using this, these terms. I feel like white nationalism, like journalists in general are a lot more comfortable using the term white nationalism as opposed to something like white supremacism or just flat out calling something racist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we're going to mock Lindsay Shepard for, you know, drawing this huge dividing line between white nationalism and white supremacism, well, maybe we should be a little bit more cognizant of the use of the term white nationalism in general and not just using it as sort of a, a crutch or a couched term to not yeah. 
Well, you know, Tim Fontaine was saying this on the show and talking about how he had to leave journalism in order to call racists racists, you mm-hmm. know, that the, the, the same methodology that, that is so focused on accuracy can allow you to play into the rhetorical and propagandistic aims of people who are, don't call me a Nazi anymore, call me a, you know, I'm, I'm a, a freedom fighter, you know, it's like, well, I don't want to get things wrong. You don't want a headline or a news story to become invective or, you know, exaggerated or to be used for rhetorical purposes. It's supposed to be exacting. But there is no space between white nationalism and white supremacy. White white nationalism is white supremacy. We shouldn't be afraid to say that. Definitionally, I think there are certain differences in the exact definitions of each one. But yeah, I mean... Inherent in white nationalism is, as you said, like an idea of racism and white supremacy. Let this be the last time we talk about Lindsay Shepard. We'll, we'll see. Oh, knock on wood there. I feel like she, she will inevitably come up again. <laughs> Laura, that is your candle and shortcuts. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks for having me on. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. And we are on Twitter at Canadaland. You do not have a website. Is there somewhere people can find you? <laughs> I am also on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Laura Howells NL, even though I am now in Toronto. Come to our website at CanadaLandShow.com to read our news stories. We also have an RSS feed, so you can subscribe to our news content. You can find that all at CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Mm-hmm.